NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. With the risk of ferocious hurricanes remaining for the foreseeable future, plans for the renewal of New Orleans obviously have to consider how to handle storm surges. But what is less obvious is how New Orleans can and should rebuild its population and civil society. Some folks see a bright future. As long as uh, we can get the uh, convention center back up and running and the hotels back up and running, I think we'll be gold. But what about the folks who call the Big Easy home? The people keep it alive. You know, if you don't have the people to push it along or, or to give it, you know, some substance, then, you know, it's really just, it's history. You know, it's just something to write in the books. New Orleans culture has been spread across the face of America like jam on a little kid's face. It's not ever going to come back. Visions of a new New Orleans and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Brazilian officials have declared a state of emergency to deal with what may turn out to be the severest drought on record in the Amazon. The drought has worldwide implications as the Amazon River makes up nearly 20% of the fresh water on the Earth's surface and carries more water than the nine other largest rivers of the world combined. But right now, with rainfall running at half of normal levels, the Amazon is at an all-time low. Scientists aren't completely sure why this is happening, but the effects of the drought are undeniable and far-reaching. Fish are dying, wildfires have been intense, and people who live along the riverbanks may be losing a way of life that dates back for centuries. Joining me now is Dan Nepstad. He's a senior scientist at the Woods Hole Research Center and is based in Brazil. Hello, sir. Hi, Steve. Can you describe for us, Dan, what you're seeing uh, down there right now? I'm here at the lower end of the Amazon, right at the mouth, and the rivers I've seen at this end uh, are quite large, and they're amazingly dry. Uh, Some rivers where you normally have to take a boat across, you basically walk ankle to calf deep in water, and there's extensive mud flats uh, where normally there would be clear water. And and a lot of these mud flats are getting covered with with dead animals, especially further up the river. Dead animals? Dead fish. uh, In some places, dead dolphins, dead manatees. Um, We're still not sure why a lot of the animals are dying. With the fish, it's probably a a lack of oxygen as the the rivers shrink in size, and fish actually get stuck in in some isolated ponds that, uh, that run out of oxygen. Talk to me about the humanitarian side here. The people that live in this region of Brazil, uh, of course, depend on the river system for survival. What's it like uh, in the villages there along the rivers that uh, rely on on the Amazon for transportation? We're seeing families and small communities of, of riverside dwellers getting cut off from society as their means of transportation, the river network, uh, dries up so that their small boats cannot get through. Uh, they're running out of water uh, because of the problem of animals dying, and their water supply from the river is, is contaminated by dying and decaying animals. What sort of issues do you see arising uh, in the recovery process for them after a drought, after an event like this? I think in addition to the, the large number of animals dying, there's a lot of other problems that are coming down the pike. Most cities, most little towns in the Amazon don't have any sewage treatment. Their sewage treatment is to put a pipe into the river. When you reduce the flow of these rivers, your former solution of dilution stops working, and we've got cesspools building up around these little towns. That has got all of the makings for disease, uh, intestinal disease, uh, cholera, that sort of thing. 
Water that's not moving is also a wonderful breeding ground for insects, including mosquitoes that carry things like malaria, that carry dengue, and other, other diseases. Talk to me about the theories that are being thrown around as to why the drought is so bad this year. I mean, I've heard that it might be deforestation. Uh, then I hear that maybe it's the rising temperatures in the Atlantic Ocean. And, and then again, folks say that it's part of a normal cycle. Uh, why do you think that the Amazon is in crisis right now? The best single explanation for this year's record drought is the heating of the oceans off the coast of Africa, the the Atlantic Ocean. That heating started spreading over to the Gulf of, of Mexico, providing a tremendous source of hot, damp air that, of course, started to rise. And that air is descending over the western Amazon. And that's a typical pattern for the dry season for the Amazon, but the heating of the surface waters of the Atlantic reinforced that, um, the, the typical pattern. So there's all this air descending over the Amazon, drying it up in the process. Um, deforestation also inhibits rainfall events. Perhaps it's linked to the, the heating of, of the Atlantic Ocean. It could be that the heating of the Atlantic Ocean is also at play in the large number of hurricanes we're seeing this year. So ironically, the Amazon's drought and fire and and the misery that's taking place where I am right now and the misery that's taking place in New Orleans may have a common link. Tell tell me about the fires. Uh, With the drought uh, and the death of the fish and the other animals, I understand there are a lot of fires. How extensive are they? We're trying to get our numbers on uh, a handle on how big the area that burned is. Right now, it looks like it's about half the size of Connecticut. Um, most years, Amazon forests are amazingly resistant to fire. They've got root systems that go down the equivalent of a five-story building into the soil so that during droughts, they can keep their green, dense leaf canopies, which makes them very difficult to burn. What's happening this year, though, is they're running out of water. There's just not enough water in the soil. And what that means is that there's a potential for a vicious feedback in which drought leads to tree death, which increases the risk of fire, which increases the chance that drought will be more severe in the future, which increases, again, the risk of more tree death. I know you're a scientist, but how do you feel about all this? You've been working there for years. Yeah, I've been working in the Amazon for the last 21 years, and I've never seen such potential for the whole system to become degraded as I've seen this year. And I think what's surprising to me is how precarious many of the traditional populations that live along the rivers throughout the region, how precarious their existence is in the face of a warming planet and drought such as this. Dan Nepstad is senior scientist for the Woods Hole Research Center and a forest ecologist in the Amazon. Thank you, sir. Thank you. With massive droughts and record-setting hurricanes being linked at least in part to global warming, climate change has caught the attention of the U.S. evangelical community. This year, global warming has been added to the platform of the National Association of Evangelicals alongside traditional positions that oppose abortion and same-sex marriage. The association claims the support of 30 million Americans and more than 50,000 churches. It recently produced a report called Health of the Nation, an Evangelical Call to Civic Responsibility. Now, the report calls on evangelicals to recognize that climate change is real and urge the government to do something about it. Joining me is the Reverend Richard Sizek. He's Director of Governmental Affairs for the association. Uh, Hello, sir. Hello, Steve. Why add concern about global warming to the evangelical platform? That's a reasonable question. In fact, we have evangelicals around the country who are asking the very same question. We're doing it because of one reason. 
the Bible mandates us, not as owners of this earth, uh, because we aren't owners. The Bible is very clear in Genesis 2.15 that we're simply stewards of what God has given us and that we're to watch over and care for it. If we're supposed to do that, then we simply can't trash it. We can't simply say, well, it's all going to be incinerated and therefore it matters not what we do with it. So it's a call to care for creation that's rooted in the scriptural tradition from beginning to end. And we're finding, frankly, enormous receptivity. Now, we've upset the apple cart politically to some folk, but at the grassroots, uh, frankly, amazing support. In fact, the surveys indicate already that we've gotten uh, surprising support for this initiative. Um, Looking at the New Testament, what does Jesus and, and the apostles, what do they say that could be applied to climate change, global warming? Well, Jesus says that, you know, you are to be stewards of the earth. You are to be the salt and light in society. You are to be the leaven you see as in the bread that uh, restores it, keeps it healthy. In other words, we are not to be agents of destruction, but agents of his continual creation. And since we are taught by Scripture that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, how is it possible for us to love our neighbor if we are committing transgressions against what he has created and impacting people around the world in phenomenal ways. I've seen figures, Steve, for example, that uh, anywhere from you know, 10 to 50 million people in the next century, this century, the 21st century, will be impacted by flooding because of uh, creation uh, warming. In other words, what is called global warming. And that 90 to 100 million people could be impacted by droughts. So how can you love your neighbor as yourself and simply say, well, that doesn't matter? I'm protected here in the United States. I, I have all the securities of Social Security and, and wealth and health care and wages and all that, and it matters not what happens to our brothers and sisters around the world. That simply is an impossible thing if you want to be a biblical Christian. Now, I'm not much of a theologian, so please excuse me. I'm probably going to get this wrong. But at the other end of the Bible, um, you come to the book of Revelation that talks about, uh, well, pretty much everything being made new and that really it doesn't matter much what happens. Well, now, wait a second. It says the Bible does say a new heaven and a new earth, a, a renewed earth. It doesn't say the earth is going to be destroyed and simply recreated from scratch, if you will, ex nihilo, as God did it the first time out of nothing. No, he's going to renew it. In fact, we see in the book of Romans by the Apostle Paul that he is redeeming creation even now and that all of creation groans for the revealing of his son, that is Jesus. And at some point he will return, that's what we as evangelicals believe, to a renewed creation. So we simply can't trash what we have, although that is a prevailing wisdom among some, uh, sad to say. Now, what actions are you taking to promote uh, reducing the threat of global warming? Well, at the very beginning... I should say, and we are at the beginning here as a movement, we have distributed our statement, which is called For the Health of the Nation, an Evangelical Call to Civic Responsibility. And it's going out to all of our churches, all of our leaders. By the way, all of the leaders, uh, left, right, and center, have signed this document. So at the very beginning, we happen to think we have, first and foremost, a theological assignment, not really a political role, but very uh, initially a theological role to educate our own constituency, and that's most important. And we think as we do that, politics will inevitably follow. And let's face it, religion always leads politics, not the reverse. Now, why do you think Republicans are going to listen to you when they haven't listened to uh, major environmental groups, uh, scientists, uh, governments from uh, Germany to uh, the United Kingdom to uh, uh, Japan on this particular issue? Mm. Well, that's a tough question. Uh, here, here's the answer. 
We may not be able as evangelicals to turn this into a preeminent issue in the 2008 election. We may not be able to do that. But we have within our midst the evangelicals that constitute 100 electoral votes that have historically gone to Republicans, 100 electoral votes. And our uh, constituency is situated in 15 states, many of them uh, Midwest, West uh, states that inhabit Republican uh, politicians. And some of these are coal states, Kentucky, Tennessee, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, western states uh, such as Wyoming. These are states with high evangelical populations, and politicians listen. And if our constituency, the evangelicals, say this matters, it's not simply radical enviros who happen to believe the earth is at stake, but we care about this issue. And the reason we care about it is because people matter. And if the poor around the world are going to be impacted, shouldn't we do something? We must. And once we've put our, um, our imprimatur on this issue, then I think we have the freedom to begin to sow, uh, sow some seeds here for a better energy bill in the long run a better climate policy by the United States. And frankly, there won't be a Republican running for the nomination, I don't believe, in 2008 who isn't going to hear from us. The Reverend Richard Sizek is Vice President for Governmental Affairs at the National Association of Evangelicals. Thanks for taking this time. Thank you. It's my pleasure. God bless you. Coming up, bringing back New Orleans. The call is for smart, sustainability, and soul. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. New Orleans is finally dry. The wreckage of tens of thousands of homes along the Gulf Coast is slowly being cleared. And the question arising from the havoc of Hurricanes Katrina and Rita is echoing from the Superdome to the Capitol Dome in Washington. How in the world do we rebuild from such an unprecedented disaster? In Washington, promises of whatever it takes have begged the question to do what? And the President and Congress have balked at the staggering early estimates for the cost of rebuilding. In Louisiana, Governor Kathleen Blanco has just appointed a blue-ribbon panel to help craft a vision for the southern part of the state and lead the rebuilding effort. In a few minutes, we'll talk with one of the leaders of that panel, as well as a New Orleans environmental justice activist who has a lot to say about what should and should not happen in and around the city. But first, Living on Earth's Jeff Young recently spent some time talking with New Orleanians about their hopes for their city. Just digging out is still a big and dirty job. Flies swarm around a refrigerator, its rotting contents spilling onto the street. Towering heaps of insulation and carpeting nearly hide some houses. But New Orleans is a place with a way of turning misfortune inside out. Funerals become parades, blues become jazz. And for artist Jeffrey Holmes, the mountains of trash become art. All of this stuff out here that you see is all of the trash from the first floor that was in all the the water. So it's toxic. It's deadly. There's black mold growing on it. It has to be destroyed. Holmes arranged soggy artwork and furniture from his gallery and home in the city's Ninth Ward into a makeshift installation in St. Claude Avenue's median. Mardi Gras beads hang from a small field of crosses he fashioned from scrap wood. Mannequins are the mourners at a tombstone bearing the spray-painted epitaph, Ninth Ward, R.I.P. Um, sooner or later, a bulldozer is going to come along and remove everything, just like uh, the Lower Ninth Ward is going to be removed by a bulldozer. Officials estimate three and a half million truckloads of waste will be hauled from the city. Much of that waste will be all that remains of many houses. Holmes worries about what will become of the artists and musicians who lived there. We don't know what's going to happen. We know that developers are just chomping at the bit 
they want the poor black people out of there so they can turn it into gated communities, condos, and planned communities. And New Orleans is not a gated or a planned community. New Orleans is a spontaneous community. It is cocktail hour. It is always cocktail hour, man. If I'm, if I'm awake, we tell time like this. Bloody Mary, happy hour, late night, late night, happy hour. In the city's French Quarter, there is less anxiety and more optimism. The quarter was spared most flooding, and Bourbon Street bars were open again just days after Hurricane Rita passed. The kitchen was not yet working at the three-legged dog on Conti Street, so owner Tim Blake grilled burgers on the sidewalk. Blake says the future looks pretty good from the relatively high ground of the quarter. Uh, But, you know, historically, New Orleans is where you are at right now in the French Quarter. Uh, And uh, as long as this old part of the city survives, I think New Orleans will will keep its charm. And and, and, and as long as uh, we can get the uh, uh, convention center back up and running, uh, I think, uh, and the hotels back up and running, I think we'll be gold. Blake also sees a bit of what he calls a silver lining. He points north, just past Rampart Street, to the now vacant housing projects. There's nobody there now, and I feel safe right now. And that's part of that silver lining. It's sad they get displaced, but I don't have to deal with that right now. And if they, the ones that come back want to work, and the ones that want to work, I'm not worried about. It's the gangs, you know. I don't want those guys back here, man. Stay away, please. We don't need you, you know what I'm saying? The good ones, we need them. The quarter is full of, of, of service industry jobs that require filling, uh, and uh, we need those people back. Uh, and the people you do have left, you can take really good care of these guys. Just past the projects Blake points to lies the Treme area. The largely African-American neighborhood is still largely empty and quiet. Resident Sean LaSalle says it's usually alive with people and music from nearby Armstrong Park. They have a lot of second lines, you know, I mean, you know, like the block parties and stuff where everybody come to hang out. And this neighborhood itself holds so much culture and so much history in it, you know, it's pretty much a, a very cultural neighborhood. If uh, neighborhoods like this, if, if they don't come back, uh, is New Orleans going to be New Orleans? Honestly, I don't think so, because the people give it the ambiance. You know, yeah, we have a lot of culture, a lot of history, but the people keep it alive. You know, if you don't have the people to push it along or, or, or to give it, you know, some substance, it's history. You know, it's just something to write in the books. LaSalle's a city native with N.O. tattooed on his left shoulder. He'll stay and he'll probably get his bartending job back. But he's not sure about his neighbors and whether they will come back to stay if the jobs rebuilding the city go to workers from somewhere else. Quit bringing in people from other places. Give the people here a chance to clean up their own city. They don't have work, but there's somebody working. There's people all over cleaning up and working. But the folks who live in this neighborhood will not have jobs. And, you know, and if, if they got to come home and stew like that, then it's going to be bad. It's gonna, the attitude is going to go from bad to worse. Over on St. Charles Avenue is Bob Rue's place. It became briefly world-famous after the storm. Rue owns Saruk's shop Antique Oriental Rugs, and newspapers around the world carried shots of the hand-painted sign he had tacked to the storefront. Rue's message was aimed at any would-be looters. It said, don't even try. I'm sleeping inside with a big dog, an ugly woman, two shotguns, and a claw hammer. Uh, I, I won't ask who the ugly woman is. We have some discretion here. 
So um, you, you never left. No, never. Uh, so many people left this city. Uh, do you think they'll come back? A great many people won't, especially middle-class people who went away and they've got their kids in school someplace else. The school system here was abysmal. And people have put their school, kids in schools in Atlanta or Houston or Dallas are realizing what schools can actually be like. They've gotten jobs. They're not coming back. They're making more money. They have a nicer apartment. It's like a diaspora after the flood of 27 in the Delta. The blues went up the river to St. Louis and Chicago and Detroit with the black people who went from the Delta. New Orleans culture has been spread across the face of America like jam on a little kid's face. It's not ever going to come back. It's a pretty gloomy assessment of the city's future. But Rue plans to stay. And before he lets the interview in, he has a request, one that hints at a bit of optimism. Any New Orleanians out there understand this. I got my place for the parade. I'm waiting. And I expect to see you guys come down the street. I want a parade. I don't care if you got to wear a milk jug over your head and a sheet and throw peanuts and dog kibble. Carnival's coming. Y'all know what that means. Get back here. Bye. This is, after all, the place where funerals become parades. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in New Orleans. With us now to discuss some of these challenges and opportunities are two people who spent a good deal of their lives in New Orleans and were now in the thick of the struggle to shape and implement a vision for the future of the region. Daryl Malik Wiley has been involved in environmental justice issues in Louisiana for 30 years. He's currently an environmental justice organizer with the Sierra Club and was himself swept out of his home in New Orleans uh, by Katrina. Hello there, Daryl. Hello there. And also joining us is Walter Isaacson. He grew up in New Orleans and later worked as a reporter for the Times-Picayune there before eventually rising to become managing editor of Time magazine and then president of CNN. And he's now president of the Aspen Institute, which uh, seeks to build bridges and dialogues in an increasingly fractured world. He's also just been named as co-chair of Governor Blanco's Louisiana Recovery Authority. Hello, sir. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me on the air. Let's talk about the lower ninth ward of New Orleans. Daryl... This is a, a poor, largely African-American uh, neighborhood that's well below sea level, been hit hard by this. What about the basic question of rebuilding there versus doing something else for the people there? What, what's your sense of, of, of their desire along those lines? Well, I think the desire is mixed. It's, you know, but you have to realize that the folks in the Lower Ninth Ward, that's one of the largest areas we have where people own their homes. And they've got deep roots in the Lower Ninth Ward. And I know it's going to be a complicated process of figuring out who can come back, when they can come back because of toxic issues. But I think there is a desire to come back and rebuild the ninth, Lower Ninth and Holy Cross in a new way that removes some of the past problems in the area. But what about the basic issue that this is, you know, really about one of the lowest parts of the city um, in a place where the water is only going to get higher and higher in the years ahead? Well, one of the key issues, environmental issues, is closing of the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, or Mr. Go. And that's where the floodwaters basically were pushed by both Katrina and Rita into San Bernard and the Lower Ninth Ward. So if we close Mr. Go and restore the wetlands in San Bernard, we will not have the type of flooding we had with Katrina and Rita. Walter Isaacson, the governor of Louisiana has just asked you to help head up what is essentially a restoration commission. How broad a mandate has she given you, and what level of detail uh, will you be able to address? I mean, are you going to be able to help New Orleans answer questions like the fate of some of its poorest neighborhoods, and, and if so, help them line up the resources to implement uh, their future? 
What we really hope to do is set certain principles. And the first one, to answer your questions about New Orleans and the Lower Ninth Ward, is that we want everybody to come home. We want to make sure everybody feels welcome in the city uh, and attract everybody back to a city that hopefully uh, has a much better education system, has much better social fabric in its neighborhoods. I grew up in the Broadmoor area of New Orleans, which also got flooded and was and is a totally integrated uh, neighborhood. I've moved out of New Orleans uh, and lived in New York and uh, Washington, which are segregated cities. Uh, I'd love New Orleans to come back with a wonderful mix that makes uh, its its culture good, its neighborhoods good, and its social fabric strong. And that means bringing everybody back. Now, how does New Orleans deal with its racial history in this? I mean, there are really, in some respects, three races in New Orleans. You have white people, and then you have uh, the Creole class of what might be called people of color who have a long history of being free folks. And then uh, you have African-Americans who uh, come from the previous plantation uh, economy there, uh, slavery in Louisiana. And many of those folks uh, really didn't get to participate in public life until, what, the 60s with the Voting Rights Act? Well, I think that's true all over America. you got people shut out of the system, uh, especially African-Americans. But in New Orleans, you have a much more complex mix than even what you just said, which is true. You have the Creoles, the African-Americans, the gentlemen of color, they used to be called in the old days. And uh, I think what you're going to have in New Orleans is what makes it strong, what makes its food and its uh, artistic life and its neighborhood life and its music strong, is when you have a mix of social classes a mix of racial classes and a mix of uh, ethnic uh, influences that create, whether it be a great gumbo jambalaya or a jazz festival or anything else. That's exactly true. I was thinking, you know, there's a large Vietnamese community, there's a large Hispanic community from a number of different countries. Uh, So that whole mix makes New Orleans New Orleans. I live uh, up the river bend, and it's an integrated neighborhood. But when I go to other cities in America, I see very strong dividing lines. The poor live there, the rich live here, and never the two meet. And that makes a poorer society, a poorer culture, and we want to make sure that that doesn't happen in New Orleans. And, you know, developers can come in here, but there is a process that they need to be listening to what the community wants and what the neighborhood wants. Let me just say amen to that, if I would, because I I hope listeners, you know, listening in Boston or any other place will realize The pathologies that we're going to try to solve in New Orleans are ones that haven't been solved in many other cities. Walter, let me ask you, this governor's task force is is, uh, obviously trying to fill a void of leadership and vision. What does Louisiana and the whole region need from Washington? I mean, a lot of big promises. Uh, There's a big price tag out there. What is it, $62 billion? Uh, Not much of it has been spent, and uh, there seems to be actually a fair amount of, you know, finger-pointing and bickering. And What do you need from the president and Congress? Well, it would be nice to have a coordinator or a point person that would, uh, you know, help us break through some of the red tape. But the main thing is we're working together right now. I had dinner with the governor, who was saying some very nice things about both the president and the uh, delegation there. We have to make sure that we can prove we can spend any money very honestly and do it openly in an open process, that we're going to spend it wisely and prudently. We're not going to ask for money for everything in the world, but we need the levees rebuilt. We need some temporary housing right now, and uh, we need a good planning process so that the school and the roads can come back. Uh, if you give us that, we can do the rest ourselves. Daryl, what, what do you guys need out of Washington, in your view? Yeah, well, you know, what we need out of Washington is some leadership and vision. Also, what we don't need is the effort that's going forward in Congress to suspend environmental regulations for up to a year and a half. I mean, it's just amazing to see what some congressional leaders are doing to say, well, we have this catastrophe, therefore, 
the environmental laws are what are going to stop us from rebuilding, that's totally untrue. So we need some real and creative vision to think about how we're going to rebuild New Orleans and Mississippi Gulf Coast in a more environmentally sustainable way, not in a developer's view of, you know, mega condos and uh, casinos. Now, we have in Katrina the, the confluence of, of both environmental and human catastrophe, both in terms of origins and its impact. So to, to what degree are the solutions to those uh, human and environmental challenges uh, in, that, in the region linked? They're very linked, and unfortunately, they're not linked at the exact same time because you may want to restore the coastal wetlands. I certainly think you need to do that. You need to open the Atchafalaya Basin. You need to keep the Barry Islands so That's a project that we've been working on for years called, you know, Coastal Restoration 2025. I don't know that you want to wait to the year 2025 before you decide how to rebuild each neighborhood, though. We've got a quick emergency problem over the next two or three years of making sure everybody feels welcome back and all throughout southern Louisiana. I mean, how important is it to move quickly here? I mean, a lot of folks moved away. They're starting to settle in elsewhere. Uh, well, I think it's we're going to have a tension between quickness and doing it the proper way, and I think that's a dynamic tension we're going to have to work with. But I think every day I've been in New Orleans for the last couple of weeks, more and more people are coming back, more and more businesses are opening up. People, once they're getting back and they're talking to people who have been in New Orleans and stayed here, are finding that it's going to be once again, a dynamic, culturally diverse, ethnically, racially diverse community that is unique in the world, and everybody will want to be in New Orleans for jazz and gumbo and beignet. Well, it'd be nice to move quickly so people get bridge loans so they can repair their houses and repair their businesses. Otherwise, they'll get settled in elsewhere. But, you know, we don't want to rush it too hard by saying, here's some quick development plans. We want to build the type of state that everybody wants to come home to. Gentlemen, that's all we have time for today. Uh, Walter Isaacson is the co-chair of Governor Blanco's Louisiana Recovery Authority. Daryl Malik-Wiley is an environmental justice organizer with the Sierra Club in Louisiana. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you for having us, Steve. I look forward to seeing you down there, Daryl. Yeah, thank you very much. Looking forward to meeting you, Walter. Coming up, when you can't go home again because it's too radioactive, the Marshall Islanders come to America. First, this note on emerging science from Emily Torgrimson. How do you turn a wimp into a leading man? Well, just remove his competition. So say researchers who work with the cichlid fish, a species that lives in the freshwater lakes of East Africa and abides by strict social hierarchies. In a study conducted at Stanford University, scientists found that when the dominant fish is removed from a tank of cichlids, a subordinate male will undergo a rapid and dramatic transformation to fill his rival's place. Within minutes, their coloring begins to change from gray to the flashy yellow and blue of a dominant fish. Prominent black stripes called eye bars also emerge, the cichlid equivalent of trading in blue jeans for a power suit. The researchers also discovered that the newly dominant fish began behaving far more aggressively, making threatening displays and chasing others around the tank. And of course, they also start taking a more active interest in female cichlids. These changes take place just 20 minutes after the male begins his social climb. The cichlid's rapid makeover seems to be caused by a specific gene responsible for ramping up hormone production. Scientists were struck by the speed at which a social factor, 
the absence of the dominant male, was able to trigger a response in the fish's genes. They hope that these findings will help shed light on the complex interaction between genetics and environment. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Emily Torgrimson. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, online at MOTT.org, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924, on the web at KRESGE.org. The Annenberg Fund, for excellence in communications and education, and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, from vision to innovative impact, 75 years of philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In scattered towns across the United States, you'll find communities of folk from the islands of the Pacific. In the Ozark Mountains of Arkansas, for example, people from the five islands and 29 coral atolls of the Marshall Islands have been arriving in search of the same things that draw other immigrants, better jobs, and education. But the Marshall Islanders also bring something else. Memories of the 67 atomic and thermonuclear weapons test staged there between 1946 and 1958. Hundreds of islanders were evacuated from the atolls where the bombs were exploded. The blast disrupted life there and contaminated the land. Some islanders still cannot go home. And some say they still pay a price in illness and poverty for their Cold War cooperation. From Fayetteville, Arkansas, Jacqueline Froelich has their story. 6,000 miles from the Marshall Islands, there's now an islander neighborhood in the chicken processing town of Springdale, Arkansas. When school is out, islander kids ride bikes and skate between the faded houses. Sitting on a sofa in an open garage, two islander women sing to eight children, playing quietly at their feet. It's customary for women to keep children at home, says Lumen Benjamin, Arkansas Marshallese community president. Benjamin's home, like others here, is decorated with lots of island mementos, cascades of artificial flowers, and family photographs. He concedes that islanders are here by choice, but maybe not first choice. I miss the water, clear water. (laughs) I miss the oceans. I miss fishing. I always fish every day. There are many other things that are really different from Bagoma. (laughs) We don't have any, I haven't seen any sailing canoes over here. (laughs) That's our main transportation, (laughs) Bagoma. Back home, Benjamin taught elementary school. Now he makes four times as much money working the midnight shift at a metal siding plant. He says it took a while to get used to the lakes, mountains, shopping centers, even the streetlights. And he alludes to another draw besides jobs. The hospitals, they're really big and they're really, as another main reason, some of the people want to come over here. They want to be near the, these big hospitals because of their... Uh, sicknesses and these things. Benjamin's family is originally from the Marshall Islands Bikini Atoll, where in 1954 the United States conducted its biggest test, a 15-megaton hydrogen bomb. 
The operation, codenamed Bravo, was one of many detonated on Bikini, as well as Eniwetak Atoll. The explosion was equivalent to a thousand Hiroshima-sized bombs and pulverized large portions of coral reef, irradiating the land and sea. The U.S. Navy, along with Atomic Energy Commission personnel, evacuated people, including Benjamin's family, from test sites like Bikini before the tests. They were allowed to go back 20 years later, but then it was determined that drinking water on Bikini was still too radioactive, so six years after that, islanders had to leave once again. In the meantime, some may have received a dose. Right now, I have a lot of aunties and... And also uncles, they died. They, they had their sicknesses with them until they, it's no longer they, their body cannot fight it anymore. They, I got two this year, they passed away. My sister also passed away last year because of cancers. The testing continued for more than a decade. Islanders on nearby atolls often were not evacuated during the tests. They were deemed to be at a safe distance. Former Marshallese Minister of Health Tony DeBroom was a nine-year-old boy fishing with his grandfather on the beach of Likiap Atoll when he witnessed the Bravo test on the northwest horizon. First the flash, uh, which at 187 miles away still managed to blind us. And then uh, I describe it as if we were standing under a glass bowl and someone poured blood on it. The whole sky turned red. Uh, this, the beach was red, the fish I had in my basket were red, my grandpa was red, his net was red. But I keep hearing him say, run, run, run to the house, run to the house. But I couldn't run, I was too scared. Bravo's mushroom cloud rose 100,000 feet up into the atmosphere, and according to the Atomic Energy Commission, fallout reached as far as Memphis, Tennessee. Prevailing winds that morning spread fallout eastward over the populated atolls of Rongelap and Utrecht. Anthropologist Holly Barker has conducted hundreds of ethnographic interviews with survivors. She serves as a senior advisor to the Marshallese Embassy. The fallout from the weapons started dropping out of the sky. They describe it as like a powder, like a mist that made everything foggy and fell to the ground. And they didn't know what it was. They didn't know that it was radioactive fallout. And so they went and they ran to it and they touched it and picked it up and played with it and ate it. And some people would store it in bottles or put it in their pockets or they just didn't know what it was. And they didn't know that it was harmful to them. And so when it fell in their water and they drank that water or that fell on their food and they consumed the food, they didn't understand the connection between uh, starting to feel ill and the radiation. Reno James is one of about 100 people still living who witnessed Bravo and experienced the fallout. He first felt the blast from inside his two-room thatched cabin on Utrecht Atoll, downwind east of the Bravo shot. He was 16. And we was uh, hear the uh, noise, the big noise. And our island is shaking and sliding. Some of the uh, tree, the coconut, fell down. And also have the dad, the powder is tripping down. And after a couple of hours, the people come sick. And some people like me, I was vomiting. It's very tasty. See, my grandfather, my father's uh, father, he passed away because he got so many kinds of sick. Something is come out on the skin and uh, just like a mumps. It's really big. Some kind of sickness we never, you know, we never had before. And so I died. 
A U.S. Navy ship equipped with medical personnel arrived three days later to treat their radiation sickness. James now has thyroid cancer. The Republic of the Marshall Islands declared independence in 1986 but maintains a strategic relationship with the United States. An agreement allowed the U.S. to keep an army base on Kwajalein Atoll in the Central Marshalls. There they test ballistic missiles and missile interceptors, support NASA space operations, and assist the U.S. Space Command with satellite tracking and surveillance. In exchange, the U.S. helps pay for public education, health, and government operations in the Marshalls. And another benefit is one many prospective immigrants would relish. Islanders are free to travel and work in the United States for as long as they wish. The compact also provided compensation for damages from the nuclear testing. A nuclear claims tribunal dispensed $72 million in personal injury claims to 2,000 survivors. Dr. Neil Palafox is a University of Hawaii professor and family practice physician. He also has been a principal investigator for the Department of Energy's Marshall Islands Nuclear Victims Program. He says 50 years after the tests exposed islanders, including those in utero at the time of the tests, those allowed to return early, and cleanup workers still live with effects, including thyroid disease, mental retardation, and many types of cancer. The cancers that have been shown are breast, lung cancer, thyroid cancer, brain cancer, stomach, intestine cancer, skin, mouth cancer, bone cancer, liver cancer, and kidney cancer. All those are, are definitely known to be have been linked with um, the long-term uh, effects of uh, direct uh, radiation exposure in high doses. Many Marshall Islanders have other health conditions that may not be related to their special history, conditions such as obesity and diabetes. Before European explorers arrived, the indigenous Marshallese caught reef fish and crabs and grew breadfruit, taro, and pandanas in their atoll, sometimes poor sandy soils. The island's carrying capacity was limited. Infant mortality was high with intermittent typhoons and famine. More outside contact meant food was more abundant, but now it included white flour, rice, and sugar. Locally grown foods were abandoned for convenience. Christian missionaries discouraged birth control. Dr. Palafox says the island's public health system is overwhelmed and cannot cope with the islanders' great needs. They approached the Ministry of Health in the Marshall Islands, but it cannot provide adequate care. And so many of them actually go without uh, the necessary care that they they should uh, receive. Now, overpopulation, the desire for better jobs, dislocation from radioactive atolls and sickness have all triggered a Marshallese diaspora. Of the island's estimated 60,000 residents, 10,000 have immigrated to the United States, most settling in northwest Arkansas. Arkansas Marshallese cultural liaison Carmen Chungom says her people have something special to offer. It's something that we can learn, and it's not just Marshallese, but the whole world, to know that these people already experienced nuclear war. They know what nuclear war is like you know, experiencing all the consequences of the fallout and and uh, losing their land and uh, not knowing if it's really safe to be on their islands. In memory of those who have suffered and died from the testing, Changom organizes an annual Nuclear Victims Day in Springdale. Dora Ivan.
The three-hour-long program featured several processions, testimony from survivors, and a church youth choir. Hundreds of islanders of all ages showed up. Chang'ung, for the first time, showed a documentary film about the Bravo test. watching islanders sitting motionless, watching themselves on the big screen. Most, like 17-year-old Kristalani Jack, had never seen these unsettling archival images. How did it make you feel? It made me feel sad. Sad knowing that some of the people that was part of the Bikini Island couldn't go back to the Bikini Island because they had poisons over there, so they couldn't go back there to live in their own island. Do you think young people talk about this? Do young Marshallese talk about this? Yeah, everybody talks about it. Even young kids talk about it. I mean, it's a big thing that happened to the Marshall Islands. They don't don't want to forget it because it's what affected the people over at the Marshall Islands. Now, five decades later, the U.S. State Department says compensation to islanders directly affected by the test program should be considered paid in full. Former Marshallese Minister of Health Tony DeBroom was a co-author of the original compensation agreement. The problem is that the United States is trying to limit its liability to islands that it says were exposed when, in fact, now we know that many, many more than the four atolls were exposed. DeBroom is referring to the long-held U.S. government position that only four atolls in the Marshall Islands were affected by the nuclear tests. New estimates by the National Cancer Institute, however, indicate that all of the marshals were exposed to radiation. NCI researchers testified before Congress they estimate 290 more radiation-related cancers still to develop beyond 2004, especially among islanders who were children during the testing. The Marshallese government is asking for $3 billion in additional compensation. Mr. Chairman, I submit this is a much larger than a legal issue. This is a moral issue. In a packed Senate committee hearing, U.S. Congressman Eni Faleomaveenga, ranking member of the International Relations Subcommittee on Asia and the Pacific, testified on the Marshall Islands' behalf. The fact is the people of the Marshall Islands are still suffering severe adverse health effects directly related to our nuclear testing program, and they are still unable to use their own lands because of the radiation poisoning. We have a moral obligation to provide for health care, environmental monitoring, personal injury claims, and land and property damaged in the Marshall Islands. But Howard Krowitz at the U.S. State Department's East Asia and Pacific desk has a different view. Tape of his Senate testimony was not available, and he declined through a spokesman to be interviewed. But he said the United States recognizes there are serious and continuing public health and medical challenges for Marshall Islanders, 
but he said the United States will already spend $16 million in health care funds in 2005 in accordance with the compact. Since the 1950s, he pointed out, the country has spent hundreds of millions of dollars on health and environmental problems related to the nuclear tests. Krawitz testified that additional expenditures in the billions of dollars are not warranted. Back in Arkansas, physicians are getting used to seeing islanders in their clinics. One physician interviewed says practitioners are learning they need to admit Marshallese patients to hospital when they first get an infection. Their immune system, she says, seemed to be compromised. To better serve Marshallese with their unusual health issues, providers have been gearing up. Medical anthropologist Deanna Perez-Williams surveyed islanders for Northwest Arkansas Radiation Therapy Institute's Cancer Prevention and Outreach Program. One of the main reasons they have migrated to the United States is because of their health. However, ideally, they would like to stay on their homeland. They would like to stay there and make a living, have the health resources, have the educational resources and benefits, because that's their home. For now, these Pacific Islanders are choosing the Ozark Mountains as their home, away from home. For Living on Earth, I'm Jacqueline Froelich in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Next week on Living on Earth, in the 1930s, in a campaign against overgrazing in the West, the federal government wiped out nearly all the Navajo Indian tribe's churro sheep. But now churro sheep are making a comeback and reawakening the central role these animals have played for centuries in Navajo commerce and culture. And then the elders, they would bring their grandchildren, you know, and tears would come by and say, these are the true sheep. These are the real sheep. Where have these come from? You know, and questions, can we get some? The interest was just overwhelming. The return of the churro next time on Living on Earth. on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Chris Ballman, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, and Peter Thompson, with help from Christopher Bolick, Kelly Cronin, James Kerwood, and Michelle Queter. Our interns are Brianna Asbury, Kevin Friedel, and Emily Torgrimson. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at livingonearth.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations. The Ford Foundation.
Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. This is NPR, National Public Radio.